This is Passport to Everywhere, an incredible worldwide journey as your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley, transports you to dream destinations, introduces you to extraordinary guests from all over the world, showcases the current state of travel, shares valuable insights, takes you behind the scenes at some of the most iconic hotels, and explores the future of travel. This is your your Passport to Everywhere. I've had the pleasure of working with today's guest in a few different capacities over the years, most recently as co-panelists at a J.P. Morgan event on travel trends this summer. I'm thrilled to have her on the show today. Shannon Knapp is the president and CEO of the Leading Hotels of the World, or LHW, a collection of over 400 independent luxury hotels spanning 80 countries, many of which are Indigari favorites and places that we send our members to regularly with great confidence that they're going to return having had exceptional experiences. They range from historic country estates like Glen Eagles in Scotland and San Ysidro Ranch in Santa Barbara to dreamy beach getaways such as Nihi Sumba in Indonesia and landmark city hotels like the Ritz in Paris. Each property in the portfolio is hand-selected for being, quote, uncommon, and each embodies the spirit of its destination. Despite no two hotels being the same, they are united by their commitment to offering an authentic, immersive, and of course, five-star experience. You'll find alluring design, delicious food, and extraordinary hospitality at every one of them. With over 20 years of experience at both leading hotels and American Express Travel before that, Shannon's pulse on the luxury travel industry has been well honed over the years, and she always backs it up with data. Today, we're going to talk about the travel trends that she's been noting of late, some of which are the result of post-COVID changes in the luxury traveler's mindset. Plus, and you won't want to miss this, she's going to share some of the enchanting properties that should be on your radar as you plan your next getaway. And stay tuned for this week's travel hack. We're talking about how not to lose your checked bag while flying. Listen to new episodes of Passport to Everywhere, Thursdays at noon, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 132. Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs-Bradley. The international adventure continues. Shannon Knapp is the president and CEO of the Leading Hotels of the World. I'm thrilled to have her on the show today, where we're talking about the travel trends that she's been noting of late. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Melissa. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. How are you? you? Good to see you. I would love to start by talking to you about your own personal wanderlust. When did you get the travel bug? When did you know you had it? I would say that that is a, it was a process. So I would say the first step for me in the development of my wanderlust was when I was studying abroad in college. I had the opportunity to be in Geneva, Switzerland, which as you know, is right dab in the middle of Western Europe. And so we went everywhere while we were there and had the opportunity to explore new cultures and you know, realize that the world was bigger than my little corner of the earth that I had come to know. So that was kind of my first exposure, my first, the the travel bug kind of bit me then. But then I had the great opportunity during my career at Amex, American Express, I worked in the travel division. And that's where I, I realized that truly I have a love for this business and I chose to make it my career. So kind of a process, but here we are. 
And can you explain a little bit about the business of leading hotels of the world? Absolutely, because it is, as you know, uh, a little bit different, right? We were established, leading was established uh, in 1928 by 38 hoteliers who got together and decided that, that they would be more successful breaking into this new emerging travel market called the United States if they pooled their resources and they worked together. And since then, those 38 hotels, we've grown to over 400 hotels in over 80 countries around the world. But that concept of working together for the benefit of all has is DNA that continues to this day. So we don't run hotels. We don't franchise hotels. We are actually a collection of curated independent luxury hotels, and we're owned by our members. So about uh, 60 or so of our members own the company, and they have made the decision to forego any profit or dividend, and they ask us to invest 100% of the membership fees and any um, profits that we would generate back into the business to benefit the collective. Um, so it's, it's pretty special in terms of the business model because we're not profit-driven. We're really here to ensure and empower the, the future of the independent luxury um, hotel, which we believe very firmly is a vital part of the ecosystem of luxury travel. And you just mentioned a couple of words. I, I wanted to ask you, what makes a leading hotel property? And independent was one word that you mentioned. Can you explain a little bit sort of more what your definition of the individual members of leading hotels of the world are, how they qualify? Sure. So there are a couple of, of things. So first is we like to refer to our collection of independent luxury hotels as uncommon. and First and foremost, because we are a pure play five-star collection, the very first thing we look at is remarkable quality. Uh, we carefully curate those hotels that will enhance the collection by bringing only the highest quality product and experience for guests. The second piece is actually about remarkable individuals. So we really try to work with uh, remarkable owners and visionaries of independent luxury hospitality to create this community that we have where individuality is celebrated and strengthened through this collaboration. And the last piece, of course, has to be uncommon experiences. So we are looking to work with hoteliers who are dedicated to crafting and delivering uncommon experiences for guests in hotels with individual character, uh, authentic connections, uh, with the destination and its people, and really that represent the embodiment of leading's culture and mission. So in some ways, to me, it's the anti-corporate, the anti-cookie cutter kind of hotels. It's a collection of those hotels that are, are truly individual. I'd love to hear sort of an example or two for guests who might not know what a leading hotel is. What does it look like? Absolutely. So, So in many ways, a lot of luxury travelers will know some of our hotels better than they know the leading brand. And that is by design because many of these hotels are brands and legacies in and of themselves. But for example, some of our hotels include the Ritz Paris in France. We have La Mamunia in Marrakesh, uh, La Serenusa in Positano. I could go on and on. The Lowell in New York City. We have some of the best hotels, unbranded hotels in, in the world. And what makes these hotels so so fantastic is that you know our collection almost 80% of our hotels are actually family owned 
and 90% are truly independent. So why does that matter? Obviously it matters because when you're welcomed by generations of families, for example, I was just at Santa Catarina in uh, Amalfi, which as you know, is an extraordinary experience. Third generation leadership uh, of that hotel, the Gambardella family is the embodiment of Italian hospitality. They are warm, they are of course professional, but they really represent um, what is fantastic about Italian culture and what specifically is special about the Amalfi Coast. Um, so I think it's that working with uh, hoteliers who have had these hotels in their families for years, who have grown up as part of the fabric of that destination, they know the best restaurateurs, the best artisans, they can create the most exclusive and differentiated experiences that really deliver on the experience of being in that market. So for me, that's what makes a leading hotel truly distinct and different than, you know, as you mentioned, kind of the, that, that sea of sameness of corporate standards and, and brands that, that while consistent around the, the world and it's difficult to do in and of itself, there's something truly unique about the independent hospitality experience where you are experiencing and immersing, being immersed in what is truly authentic about where you're visiting. I happen to believe that so much of really understanding any place and having emotional resonance with it is because of the human beings that you connect with and who become ambassadors to that place and open the world up to you. And, and all of those properties that you mentioned, I, and I immediately in my head have individual human beings who have taught me about that location because of, you know, whether it's, it's the folks at Mamunya and the way they talk about the garden and how they pour tea and the traditions in, in Marrakesh of all of the culture that goes on in there. So you're absolutely right. It's the individuals that make an authentic experience, I think. Absolutely. And it's, it truly is. It's an extraordinary experience. I mean, I was just, I happened to be in Amalfi just last week. And um, there are many ways you can get there, but we happened to fly into Naples. And we had just the most extraordinary experience facilitated by the hotel, by Crescenzo, where we were able to go to the best pizza experience in, in all of Naples, Chiro Concettina Tresante. He was closed. He was closed for two weeks on holiday. And because of the relationships and the nature of the relationship that Crescenzo had with Chiro, he opened it for, for us. It was a private uh, experience within a, truly an extraordinary culinary journey. And quite frankly, he's a tremendous showman as well. Yeah. So it was an amazing experience, but they were closed. But they opened for us because of that relationship. That's the kind of thing that I feel like you, you can't replicate. I hope you had your kids with you because that will be a pizza experience they would never forget. No, okay. I didn't, sadly. I was there for work, <laughs> but that was okay because it meant I could enjoy it. <laughs> yes, well, that's true. <laughs> now, I know you just released a new report on the luxury status of travel and hotels in the hospitality industry right now, and I'm really curious to see what trends you are discovering through that new report, what can we expect as we get back out into the world in 2022? I don't want to say post-pandemic, but post-lockdown. What are the reports telling you? 
Well, so we publish this report on a quarterly basis because we, we are, I think, in the unique position to have insight into uh, 400 luxury hotels around the world in different regions and, and different destinations with different trends. We publish this w with the interest of sharing those insights uh, with the world. And, and what I can tell you, there are probably three key insights, and you'd see this in the report. The, the first is that our consumers, the luxury traveler, is continuing to trade up. This was a phenomenon that we saw happen during COVID, but we actually are seeing this continue. So even today, our suite and villa bookings are 36% above where they were in 2019. Like I mentioned, this was this started in the pandemic with the desire for space and privacy, um, but we're seeing that continue even as things return to normal. And certainly, I I, I don't know what normal even is anymore, but. Um, that despite all the negative um, macroeconomic headwinds, et cetera, we are seeing, we're seeing not only this, this trade up to villas and suites continue, but we're also seeing um, average daily rate continue to, to thrive as well. We're 40% we're above where we were in 2019, which is extraordinary if you think about it. The second trend is obviously, and you know this quite well, international travel has returned with gusto but it's not at the expense of the domestic travel that a lot of these hotels had cultivated during the pandemic. So we are seeing our business is really built on US travelers to Europe, and we are seeing that um, just explode and continue beyond the traditional summer season, right? But uh, US travel to Europe was up approximately 225% year over year and back at 2019 levels. We're also seeing a lot of domestic travel and close in regional travel continue to churn as well. So it's a great situation for our members because they're seeing the, the American business come back and they're also seeing the benefit of their hard work during the pandemic to cultivate new guests. Many of them are having extraordinary record years themselves. And then the last piece, which is encouraging, I think uh, for me, as I look at the health of, of not only leading in our portfolio, but the broader travel business in general, is that there is a renewed interest and return to city destinations. We're starting to see momentum pick up in some of our key cities around the world. We have a 100% increase in, in revenue in, in cities around the world um, since 2021. Um, and obviously our portfolio is about a 50-50 mix between city and resort. So um, it's important to us to see this, this return to some of the most um, vibrant cities in the world, whether that's Paris, London, New York, for me, it's very gratifying that, that we're seeing that business return, even without a really, a really large increase in corporate business, which obviously is an important driver of city business for, for our member hotels. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Those are exactly the same kind of trends that we've seen across our own business. With We had 56% average daily room rate over 2019 this summer, a lot of that driven by prices in Europe, and even with yeah. a strong dollar. But I think it's fascinating exactly what you said is that despite the fact that America had such a surge of interest during lockdown and people discovered how fantastic it is to travel within their own country, people returning to Europe has not taken away from the interest in the U.S. And, and we're definitely seeing both of those two things. And it's exciting that people are returning to cities, particularly New York, where you and I have both spent a lot of time to see tourists coming back. And, and, and they're definitely, it's not so much corporate as it is leisure. So it's very exciting. 
Now, in terms of the trends that have changed, the behaviors of consumers that changed during lockdown, have there been changes within the hotels or new systems that have been implemented or new amenities that have become a focus? Absolutely. I, and you and I have talked about this before. The, the COVID was a terrible experience. And I even st- I, it's not over, to your point, right? But we have figured out a way to live with this global uh, health challenge. But the silver lining, if you can point to one, is the impact that the shutdown had on uh, our independent hotels. So one of the, the greatest things to come out of this, this tragedy and this challenge was the innovation and creativity that the independent hotel was able to show. So first off, they're not limited by brand standards. They can be agile. They can move quickly. They don't need approvals. And we saw a lot of really innovative changes in public space, in services, in amenities, in product that the hotels came up with during COVID in response to a lot of the challenges that they were managing through. And what's been fantastic is we have seen that momentum of innovation and creativity and trying new things. We've seen that continue. So we've seen some of the innovations that that the hotels have made during COVID carry through, but we've also seen them embrace new ways of doing business. Uh, And I, I would probably point to two examples of that. The first is their embrace of technology. Finally, the adoption of technology in luxury hospitality has arrived for real. I think we're finally seeing them understand how digital enablement can enable them to do what they do best, which is serve the guests. So we're really seeing um, an aggra- probably, I would say, an, ex- an acceleration of using uh, data and technology tools to accelerate their service delivery on property. The second thing that I would say is this, and I mentioned it earlier, about the cultivation of new customers, new customer segments. So being open to continue to look for new ways to drive business and not falling back into the old reliable, especially for our European hoteliers, two-thirds of our portfolio is in Europe. Just because the Americans have returned, we aren't seeing them kind of return to to business as usual. They're continuing to try and cultivate new segments and new customers and attract the local traveler, the regional traveler. And that to me is just going to lead to to more diversification and more health overall for those those hotels. So it's been exciting to see the embracing of um, innovation and being willing to continue that momentum as we emerge from the crisis. Yeah, actually, it's exciting. You you mentioned the Ritz earlier. I was there almost the day that the world was allowed to travel back to France or Americans were allowed to travel back to France. And one of the things that they had done, to your point about innovation, was they had turned an area into a pastry area that is now the hottest pastry shop in Paris. And there are lines out the door from Parisians to pick up yeah. the, the amazing creations of the pastry chef, but it's something for a a guest who, to be able to integrate a little bit more with the locals through some of those innovations, I think is such a a great change, as is, frankly, being able to order my cappuccino in the morning on, (laughs) on an iPad instead of having to call downstairs. So those are some of the examples I think that you're talking about. Absolutely. So it, it is really amazing. You mentioned how Independent hotels, in some ways, bore the brunt of, and certainly independent restaurants, 
of the pandemic in the toughest of days. Those properties are incredibly important to the hospitality industry overall. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think, you know, people don't, they lump everything together and they don't realize that there are these segments and this is such an important one. Absolutely. And and we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I, I think the role of independent hotels in the broader hospitality industry is really vital. I think it's it's vital to advancing luxury service. I think, as, as I mentioned, because they are not bound by limits and standards and approvals, of, you know, they can really innovate and try new things and see how it goes. And they're very, very close to their guests. That's the other thing. So their ability to understand the needs of their guests, how their the guest needs are evolving, whether that's in time of crisis or just as a luxury consumer needs change, they're very close to that guest and they can see it. And so they're very quick to address those changes, address those needs, um, whether that's through F&B concepts, it's through uh, servicing uh, innovations and changes, product changes, you know, as you mentioned with the Ritz and, and what they did and the fact that they're keeping that. So I think they kind of are on the leading edge of defining the the new luxury experience or the luxury experience that is aligned with the needs of the luxury traveler. That's the the role that I think is really important. And then I'd say the second piece of that is the elevation of that destination authentic experience and really bringing forth what is true and great about individual destinations. It's not about guests consuming that destination. It's really about being immersed in that destination and being transformed in some ways by that destination and their, their experience there. And I think, again, independent luxury hotels do that better than, than anybody else. And so I think those two factors together, and I think you see this with the big brands jumping on board with the, I mean, and this has been going on for you know 10 years now, but jumping on board with the, the concept of, of independent collections, right? Which I find interesting myself, but I I do think that they understand that there's this unabated growth of consumers' desire and demand for difference and and authenticity and truly immersive experience. And it's, again, being led by the independent hotelier and, and kind of being drafted off of by others. All of the hotels, independent and bigger brands, have been facing shortages with staff and and real issues that have come out of the pandemic. Certainly, your hotels are familiar with some of the complaints that we've been getting as a, as a travel agency this summer with people getting very frustrated by service issues. And it all stems from the fact that it's been very difficult to hire staff. What are some of the things that you think are we have to look forward to in terms of changing this and and you see a light at the end of the tunnel for some of this? I wish I could say I did see a light at the end of the tunnel. But as you know, and you and I have discussed this on previous uh, panels, this labor crisis has been in the works for much longer than COVID. Uh, there's been an aging of the hospitality worker that, because of COVID, was accelerated in terms of, of people leaving the business. And I think we as an industry need to do a much better job of making a career in hospitality more attractive to the the next generation of workers. Um, And that starts very early, Um, exposing high school, college age, university age people to the possibility of hospitality. 
I also think, quite honestly, there's a lot of work we need to do in terms of our flexibility. You know, we came up a certain way in the business and we're, there's an apprenticeship culture. You have to kind of put in the hours. You have to work the weekends. You have to do the holidays. You have to be the night manager. You have to do all of that stuff. And, and what we're learning is that this kind of 24-7, always on for not great pay, if we're being very honest, is not a very attractive career path for a lot of our younger generations of workers. And that's a real problem for us. We have to challenge ourselves to think differently about attracting and retaining talent to this beautiful, amazing, spectacular industry of ours that if you know, we can do the job of exposing younger people to the beauty of a career in hospitality and then make it feasible that they can actually do it, um, I think is really important for us because quite frankly, the luxury segment in particular, as you mentioned earlier, is reliant, reliant 100% on the individuals who work in the hotels. The hotel is, is the body, right? But the people are the heart and soul of that experience. And if we don't have them, um, it's going to be a real crisis, I think, for specifically in luxury hospitality. Can I also say that what we did see, and, and it varies significantly, but I was just speaking to Crescenzo at uh, Santa Caterina, and he retained 90 plus percent of his staff. One of the things that is so important to the individuals in these properties is it's not just that they're the heart and soul, but when they're greeting you, you want to be greeted with genuine warmth and, and happiness and they're spreading joy. It's hard to do that if you hate your job. And so, <laughs> you know, the places I think that can retain people are the places that value them as human beings and want them to have great, you know, work-life balance. And in an industry, it is hard to do that, that, you know, where the service expectations are for 24-7. And yet you also want people who are happy and, and generous and excited to be of assistance. And so yeah. th there is a give and take there. Absolutely. It's, it's a pretty, um, I find the people who work, especially at our hotels, to be extraordinarily special in their ability to just absolutely love what they're doing. And that comes through in every interaction. It's, it's what makes the experience. 100%. Um, so can we talk about some of the new hotels? Because you every year you add hotels. 2022 is no different. Are there new properties that you can talk about and what made them able to join the ranks? Absolutely. We, we as you know, are not a unit growth company. So we're not focused on, you know, how quickly can we grow the units in leading hotels. What we're really focused on is identifying the absolute best hotels in the world to join the collection. And so we usually add somewhere in the neighborhood of about 30 hotels every year, plus or minus, some years a little bit more, some years a little bit less, but generally speaking, we add about 30 plus new hotels every year. This year we're on target to do the same. You know, when we're looking at hotels to add, we are considering their ownership. I mean, we've been talking a lot about that. Um, are they independent? Are they family owned? Obviously, the quality in terms of they must be five-star, they must be the, the best in the market. Two other things that we look at when we're looking at new hotels, the first is, are they emblematic? You know, do they have a history, a story to tell, architecture, F&B stories, F &B, different concepts that make the hotel story worthy? And the second thing is where it's located, because we are very, very focused and we believe there's a, a lot of unmet demand in some of the markets around the world for truly independent luxury hotels. 
So we kind of look at all of these factors and that's what gets us, we probably receive somewhere between five and 600 inquiries every year to be members for leading hotels. And we usually accept, you know, around 5% of them. So it's, it's still a pretty exclusive, very exclusive process. But uh, of the 30 that we're kind of on target for this year, we have some great new destinations for us. We have the Jackalope in uh, Australia, which is phenomenal property. Casa Angelina in Priano and uh, on the Amalfi Coast, which I was just at. Um, and we had brought together our community uh, along the coast for a great dinner, beautiful dinner on the rooftop at, at Casa Angelina. It's a beautiful, really unique product um, amongst the others there. So very cool. Nayara Gardens in Costa Rica. We have a great partnership and collaboration with Nayara and we continue to grow that. They have extraordinary, um, some tented camps uh, and, and other extraordinary products. Um, so we're thrilled to, to expand our relationship with them. We've also expanded our relationship with Glen Eagles who opened the townhouse in Edinburgh. So it's just a few, but we have everywhere, South America, North America, Europe, Asia. So. We're excited about the growth and I'm excited to try and go see as many of them as I possibly can. And I know that sustainability is also increasingly important, not just to, to leading hotels of the world, but to travelers and consumers and, and all of us. How does that factor in in terms of when you look at a hotel and, and decide that it has a good sustainability program, what are you looking at? Yeah, we, like everybody, I think, this idea of sustainable and responsible travel is something that had begun before the pandemic and really accelerated throughout the pandemic. But what I can say for leading is that this idea of responsible travel has actually been deeply ingrained in the DNA of leading hotels long before the trend of sustainability. And I'm, I'm optimistic that this time it will be more than a trend and it will actually stick. I would say from Costa Rica to Portugal, uh, many of our leading hotels work tirelessly to protect the environment, reducing their carbon footprint or supporting their local communities, truly defining what, what leading with a purpose really looks like. We at Leading, um, on behalf of the, the company as well as our members, have a focus on elevating three UN sustainable development goals. First is decent work and economic growth. The second is responsible consumption and production. And the third is climate action. Our hotels are also um, very much so involved, some of them by nature of where they are situated, but life below water is another sustainable development goal that the, the organization is very focused on and life on land. So we kind of are stacking our corporate and hotel efforts up against these three core and then those two kind of additional UN sustainable development goals to uh, make sure that we are obviously doing our part but I also believe that this is going to increasingly become an important decision-making factor for travelers who are going to be looking at what hotels and all travel brands and frankly, all brands that they interact with, how are they being responsible global citizens? And they're gonna to start to make decisions based on the commitments, the authentic commitments of brands uh, to ensuring the sustainable and, and responsible travel overall. And because I believe it very much so includes ensuring the continued um, prospering and, and thriving of, of communities and cultures in which many of our hotels are situated as well. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things about tourism business as a whole. You know, people are not necessarily as aware that it is 10% of the GDP. And in many cases, 
it is tourism and hospitality that drives the, the earliest community empowerment in, exactly. in many regions around the world. So that was one of the things, again, the highlights of the pandemic, that people did come to realize the power of tourism to really help employ people in, in communities and maintain cultures. Yeah, and it was one of the, I remember very early uh, on when people started traveling again, they were, they were selecting destinations where they felt they could, their, their dollar or their spend would have the, the greatest impact on the local community, whether that was small businesses or the people living in that community. They were very focused, our travelers were very focused on making sure that they were supporting the recovery of small businesses and hotels and cultures, communities around the world. It was, it, it was amazing the way that those decisions were being, were being considered. Yeah. And in terms of uh, trends and where people are going, do your quarterly reports help you predict that? And, and as you look at the world reopening, what places are of interest right now? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things with leading that's interesting because two-thirds of our portfolio is in Europe. We certainly see fairly consistent trends year over year with where our, our guests are uh, traveling to. But with that said, I you know, we are seeing um, huge continued demand for Europe, um, Italy, France, Portugal. We are seeing uh, continued strength in, in domestic travel in the U.S., of course, you know, I, I don't want to say the same old standbys, but but at the end of the day, a lot of our a lot of our travelers enjoy returning to some of these destinations over and over again because of the experiences that they have and the ability to explore and experience new things with with every trip. So, I'm surprised by how, and I don't know if you're seeing this too, Melissa, how long some of our hotels are staying. They're seasonal. They're staying open longer because the demand is so extreme. Um, yeah, no, so in France, continue. In France and Italy, there are a lot of hotels that traditionally close in mid-October who are staying open now through the new year. Exactly. And, and I think they're, they're one of the great benefits of this may be that people reevaluate the seasonality and understand that, you know, and, and hopefully we won't have these huge high seasons and low seasons, but maybe a much more consistent level of travel across Europe than we've had in the past. and. And certainly what we're seeing, there are parts of Asia that have opened, like Cambodia and Thailand, where people are having amazing experiences because most people have kind of unfortunately put Asia in one bucket and they think, you know, all of Asia is closed when in fact there are plenty of countries, India as well, that are, that are yes. open and that don't have the crowds that they traditionally do. And I think it's a great opportunity for people to travel to those countries now before they get crowded and to do exactly what you said, to support those communities and, and businesses with their dollars because they've desperately needed it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So are there other areas that you can forecast where you think there will be new hotels or a, a lot of hotels opening that are really emblematic and special? I've certainly seen it throughout the U.S. I think that's going to be continued area of hospitality investment. I wonder if you think the same and if there are other places. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, it's been specifically in the U.S. for us in the Northeast here to see what's happening in the Hudson Valley. There's been a tremendous amount of luxury product being uh, that's either been built and is up in, in operations or is in development now. So that's, that's great to see as a New Yorker. I love the drive market and some real quality uh, luxury product there. 
we're seeing, uh, you know, I think Milan is really seeing a great renaissance. There's a, a lot of development going on there. We are obviously London, I, I know you know this, has, has seen an explosion of luxury properties over the last couple of years, and many of them opening this year or soon to open. South America, we're seeing some development at Colombia, Chile, Panama. We actually have just signed a hotel in Panama as well. So some interesting development there. Australia, you know, there's actually, there's a lot going on and, and I'm not, it's not surprising. I think maybe there was a little bit of a, a, a slowdown in, in development during the crisis time, but the delays are now all coming to fruition and it's kind of popping all over the world. And, and it's, it's very um, encouraging to see. Yes, no, I think so too. And I agree with you that even with the economic headwinds, we are not seeing a slowdown in demand for people to travel. And I think one of the things that we noticed during lockdown where there were quite a few people who had had trips that they'd wanted to take for years put on hold and they've just, you know, there's a whole spirit of seizing the day when it comes to travel and, and people just don't want to take for granted that privilege that they lost for a while. Yeah. And you know what's fascinating is if I, as I look at 2023 business, we are 50% ahead of where we were at the same time heading into 2020, right? So if you remember, the first quarter of 2020 was record. record. We were on record pace, right? So we are 50% ahead of where we were at, at 2019, same time heading into 2020. So what I think is happening, to, to your point, some of, some of that is organic demand and it, it's just people booking further out in advance. But some of that is compression. Some of that they had a, people wanted to go to Italy and France and do their traditional uh, European holiday this year, and they booked too late. Um, and they just, because they couldn't get 2022 summer, they just rolled it over to 2023. And I think a lot of, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But it has been really fascinating to see the consumer, the, the luxury traveler saying, okay, fine, I can't get it now. I'll, let's get it on the books for next year because I don't want to, I've been waiting for this trip. I've been desperate for it. I've planned every detail of it. I know exactly what I want to do and I'm going to make sure I get it done right. So I'll push it out to the next year. It's been phenomenal. Really interesting. And another question I have for you, for that luxury consumer, do you guys track who that consumer is and how they may have changed over time? And what are you seeing for that? We do. We do uh, research with our Leaders Club members in particular. And I would say similar to what you just referenced, I think a lot of people, uh, our Leaders Club members certainly are global citizens. And even before the pandemic, they travel was very much so who they were, not what they did. And, and it, it, for them, each trip that they take is a journey of self-discovery and it kind of adds to who they are as people. So even throughout, I mean, other than, you know, March and April of 2020, after that, our travelers, our, our Leaders Club members were traveling. And were they traveling as frequently as normal? You know, their 14 plus trips that they take a year? No, but they were traveling. And I think this idea that scarcity creates demand, this idea that people were unable to do what they're most passionate about for so long has created this I don't know that I would call it a bubble per se, but I don't know that we can maintain this frenetic pace that we're experiencing in the industry. They're obviously, they continue to be passionate about travel. They continue to want to share that travel with people who are important to them. Um, and so we're seeing a little bit more multi-generation travel probably than historically we have. 
that will watch and see, is it just a blip or is it something that, that continues? They're, they're keen to return to their old favorite, but they're also peppering in new destinations. They're staying longer. They're spending more. They're staying in higher room categories. You know, a lot of those, those themes that we talked about earlier, but we do, we do keep a very close eye on them. A, because I think they're, they're obviously our, our most loyal and important guests, but B, because they are the intrepid travelers who are kind of on the leading edge of trends and, and, and we can see what's to come because yeah. they are, they're the ones who are out there doing the traveling. Yeah, we, we call those our trailblazers, the members that are always the first out there and the first in, in new destinations. That's right. So I want to end with just a couple quick questions about you as a traveler. Is there something you always have in your carry-on? Melatonin and my Kindle. And what's the first thing that you do when you check into a hotel? Take a shower. <laughs> and <laughs> jet lag cures? I, uh, as soon as I get to the airport, I put my watch and my mentality to the destination that I'm going to. I also try not to eat. Uh, if it's a late night flight, I, I try not to eat. Um, late night so that I can get myself to sleep and, and kind of get on the right right rhythm. I always, like I said, have the melatonin, which helps um, with, the, with the early adjustments. Yeah, but that's it. I, just, I think the key is putting myself on the, the mental and watch time of yeah. the place that I'm going to and, and acting, acting that way. I'm fairly lucky with when the sun is out, I'm awake. And when the sun goes down, I, I go to sleep. Knock on wood, that still works. And what's next on your wish list for travel? Well, we are going to Mexico for the annual convention. And so my family is going to meet me down there. Uh, and we're going to spend Thanksgiving in Mexico and Riviera Maya and have a, a Mexican uh, Thanksgiving feast. So that, that I'm excited about. I actually haven't been to Mexico in over six years. So I'm looking forward to returning because it's actually one of my favorite, favorite places to be. Fantastic. Me too. It's a wonderful country. So many it different really aspects is. to it. Well, thank you so much, Shannon. It was great to be with you. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Always a pleasure, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. I want to thank our guest, Shannon Knapp, President and CEO of Leading Hotels of the World, for being with us today and for taking the time to discuss luxury hotel insights and trends. And stay tuned for this week's Travel Hack. We're talking about how not to lose your checked bag while flying. Explore the future of travel with Melissa Biggs Bradley on Passport to Everywhere, streaming now on all podcast platforms. And for more on Melissa's work, follow Indigari Travel on Instagram. Travel Hacks with Melissa Biggs Bradley from Passport to Everywhere. This week on Travel Hacks, we're talking about how not to lose your checked bag while flying. You've all heard of the summer of love. Well, 2022 was the summer of lost bags. And no one loved that. According to the U.S. Department of Transportation Air Travel Consumer Report, nearly 220,000 check bags among U.S. airlines were lost, damaged, delayed, or ripped in the first quarter of 2022. That's a record. So our best advice? First of all, don't do it. Don't check your bags. You've heard this a million times, but now is really, really the time to pack light. I have actually traveled for up to two weeks, sometimes with only the contents of one carry-on bag. I will do a whole episode on how to do this. There are some definite tricks. The most important one is you have to plan ahead to pack well, but you can do it, and I will share my tips soon. Second, 
in terms of not losing your bag is if you have to check your bag, document it. By that, I mean photograph it on the outside and photograph the contents too. Make it easy for anyone who's trying to find the bag to identify it and make it easy for you to show the carrier or your insurance company what was in it. Next, you should definitely use a luggage tag. It's unbelievable to me, but I see it all the time, even with my own clients. Many people don't put name tags on their luggage. They rely on the numbered tag put on a bag at check-in, and also maybe the little paper name tag some carriers still give out. They might have a $500 bag with thousands of dollars worth of clothing inside, and still really no solid, sturdy luggage tag. Please put your tag on your bag with a phone number so that if you do lose it, someone can contact you. A lot of people now are actually also using a luggage tracking device. Apple, Samsung, Bluetooth, lots of others offer inexpensive tracking devices. They're not going to get your bag for you, but at least you'll know where it is, what country it's in. And that can be highly valuable, sometimes even invaluable. The other thing that I do, because I don't really rely on those other things, if I don't do carry-on, I will consider shipping my bag ahead. There's great luggage shipping services. Luggage free, luggage forward, luggage to ship. These are just a few of the companies out there that can take your luggage off your hands. Some people may be reluctant not to travel with their belongings, but if you have to pack and check items that are essential but bulky, like hiking boots or ski clothes or a tuxedo, it's much better to let it go before you leave. Have someone else handle getting your stuff where it needs to be than trusting it to an overcrowded airport. The other thing that I would say is if, again, you're going to insist on checking a bag, don't connect. Fly direct. And by that, I mean fly nonstop. Because every single stop between your departure destination and your arrival destination, there's a chance for something to happen. And that increases the more stops you have. So whenever possible, avoid or minimize connections and make sure that any connections that you do have allow enough time for your bags to get off of one plane and onto the next one. So hopefully those tips will help you hold on to your bags. But here's hoping that fall 2022 is the season of less lost luggage. Everyone in travel and everyone who travels would really love that. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs-Bradley. This week on Passport to Everywhere, we're launching our travel question and answer segment. I've asked Katherine Nathanson, our Global Experience Director at Indigare, to join me for this segment that we're calling Ask Melissa. And I'll be answering travel questions each week that you've sent or called into the show about what to wear on the road, where to go, how to get there, and much more. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Melissa. It is a professional goal of mine to be able to put you in the hot seat. So I'm very <laughs> excited to be asking you questions in this segment. <laughs> okay, let's have some fun then, Catherine. We're going to have some fun with this. Okay, so for our first question of the series, holidays are clearly on our listeners' minds. So somebody wrote in, my family and I haven't booked a trip over the holidays yet this year. What's still open? Where am I going to find availability? 
Well, there's lots of places that are very booked already in part because of delayed cancellations that have been rolled over, like big resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico. There are a lot of places that have recently opened that people still aren't really putting back on their radar. So places like Thailand, which has traditionally been incredibly popular in December for European and Asian and American travelers and Australian travelers, they are reopened and we have had staff there and the hotels and the properties are great. So that's a place to consider. Similarly, Cambodia has recently reopened. So it's a great moment to go to a place like Angkor Wat that normally is very crowded with visitors from China, for instance, very few of whom are able to get out of the country at the moment. So that's a place that is great to take advantage of very thin crowds. So those are two places I would recommend. There are many places in Africa that are already very crowded, like South Africa for festive and Tanzania and Kenya are going to be hard to go to. But another place to consider is India, which opened its borders not that long ago. And people usually plan those trips many, many months, if not years in advance, and they've been closed down. So we're seeing good availability still in India. So those are farther flung locations. Many ski resorts in the U.S. are already very full, but there are a lot of ski resorts in Europe, which is a particularly great destination this year for the dollar in terms of value. Your ski tickets in Europe are going to be cheaper than they are at many of the big resorts in the United States. So I would say certainly European cities, you can still get great deals and great availability as the flight prices have come down. And many of the hotel prices are starting to come down. And many resorts in Europe, for instance, around Lake Como and in the south of France, have extended their time period. And instead of closing at the end of October, the beginning of November, they've extended and they're open till uh, after New Year's. So those are new destinations that you wouldn't have been able to go to uh, in previous years. Great advice. And next question we have here, I'm taking us a little closer to home. I want to take my family to the Caribbean over the holidays. What are good islands for families and any ideas on where I can still get in? I'm not sure where you're still going to be able to get in because it's extremely popular in the Caribbean at the moment. I would say if you have some flexibility around your dates, so for instance, if you have holidays that are starting a little bit earlier and you could travel, for instance, from the 17th or 18th of December till the 24th instead of from the 24th until the 2nd of January, or similarly, if you're able to go after the 2nd of January, you're still going to find a fair amount of availability. It depends on the age of your kids in terms of the best islands for kids. If you have young kids, I suggest islands with the direct flights. And we actually have on our website articles that literally list the flights, the islands that you can get to directly from major cities like the New York area, Philadelphia, DC, Atlanta. So those are going to be good options. If you've got kids who are in their teenage years, they probably want a little bit more activities than just beach and pool and water toys and sand. So you might want to think about places that have a little bit more action to them, whether it's Barbados or St. Bart's or Harbor Islands, always popular with teenagers, though it's not super warm always at Christmas, but the Bahamas are very popular for families. So those would be some of the places I would suggest. Again, I think it is tough to get in already for Christmas because many places are already booked up. 
Okay, let's get into clothing. What shoes do you wear for a day of sightseeing when you want to be stylish, but you're also walking a lot? You know, it has become really easy to find fashionable sneakers. In Europe, they call them baskets, but there are so many great, comfortable sneakers to wear. I like a little bit of height. So there's a Spanish brand I particularly like called Pedro Garcia, but there's some great JP Todd sneakers. There's great Prada sneakers. Lots of people love the Hoka sneakers, but certainly for really comfortable, versatile walking on cobblestones or just standing on your feet for a long time, I really don't think anything beats sneakers. Flats would be the second alternative, but they're not going to give you the same kind of cushioning. So rock your sneakers. Staying on the outfit topic now, I always struggle trying to decide what to wear to the airport. I want to be comfortable, but I don't want to look frumpy. What's your go-to airport outfit? Okay. Confession here. My favorite go-to airport outfit, which feels like pajamas, but actually looks pretty pulled together, is a great black t-shirt, long sleeve, comfortable t-shirt with a pair of flare Spanx. There are Spanx pants. They have a seam. They're as comfortable as Lululemon. They're stretch on and they're available online. They're a really great airport pant. I then throw a three-quarter length cardigan sweater over that and probably some kind of a comfortable jacket on top of it and hand the jacket to the stewardess or roll it up and put it in my carry-on in the overhead and have that three-quarter length cardigan as kind of my blanket as I sleep on the plane. And you get off, you look great, have a pashmina, some kind of scarf to wear. And that to me is a great go-to outfit on any plane. And you can go straight to lunch wearing the same thing, but it feels like you're wearing pajamas. Okay. This one, I'm really curious about myself. What is one thing you can't get on a plane without? My carry-on bag is filled with a lot of things that help me be comfortable on the plane. So the immune boosters, I have Zycam always in my bag. I use hydration tablets because you get dehydrated on the plane. I'm really about arriving in comfort and sleeping and being healthy on a plane. Those are the most important things. What's a meal you had on a recent trip that you're still drooling over? Well, I've just been in Italy and there are some pretty incredible meals one that I will never forget was at Massimo Batoro's restaurant that he created for the Ferrari Canteen. And one of the dishes that he serves there was inspired by his grandmother's crispy part of the lasagna, which is a leftover and it has a little piece of gold foil the way you would have the leftover as a piece of tin foil on it. And it is just melt in your mouth, absolutely delicious lasagna. So I, I love that. And there was a dessert afterwards, which was a chocolate Modena dessert. It was an absolutely perfect lunch. It's hard to beat Modena and Massimo Batura. How have your travels inspired you to change your life? Literally your habits. Have you adopted any new habits from the places that you visited? That's such a good question. I think that I am a bit of a chameleon. So almost every time I go someplace, I'm inspired by things that I try to incorporate into my life. So whether it's 
thinking differently about breakfast and starting to eat, you know, when I'm in Europe, I might have great cheese and breads for breakfast, and then I'll go home and I'll start doing that for a while, or I'll bring spices from the Middle East. Like I love za'atar, which I discovered in Lebanon. And I bring that home and I have a little bit of za'atar on toast and it reminds me of Lebanon. Um, so a lot of the time it's with food. Sometimes it's with fashion. I mean, I, I've just been in Italy and France and the way the street style in both of those cities is so colorful and cool. The women you know, wear high heels when they ride their bicycles, but they wear sneakers with what we would wear for evening clothes over jeans during the day. And it makes me just start to rethink how I would put clothes together. So I think in every time I go someplace, there are ways, if music, uh, when I was recently in the Middle East, listening to music in the car that the driver was playing, you know, I bring that home and it makes me think differently about the kind of music that I want to listen to. So I think travel, if you're open to it, changes your perspective in little ways and in big ways. I mean, I, I started doing breath yoga in India years ago when there was a class at one of the Oberoi hotels in the morning. And that's something that I try to incorporate into my morning practice many years later, just because it's a really great way to bring some mindfulness to the start of the day. So I think it can be in big and small ways, but I think that's one of the greatest things about travel is it opens your mind up to change all of your habits at home. Excellent answer. That was a great session of Ask Melissa. Thanks, Catherine. I look forward to answering more questions with you next week. I can't wait. Get ready for it. See you then. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed listening, please rate and review the show on your podcast platform so more curious travelers can easily find us. And if you have travel questions or stories to share, please send them to me on Instagram at Indigari Founder or by email to passport at SiriusXM.com. You can subscribe to the show on all podcast platforms and listen live Thursdays on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 132 at noon Eastern time. We'll be back next week with Arctic explorer, photographer, and climate activist, Sebastian Copeland. And on Travel Hacks, we'll discuss what to do if your bags do get lost when traveling. continues next week. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs-Bradley streaming now on all podcast platforms and anytime on the SXM app. Follow Melissa on Instagram at at Indigari Founder. And for more on Melissa, head to Indigari.com. I-N-D-A-G-A-R-E. Send us your questions about travel. Passport at SiriusXM.com. Or call us at 646-535-7297. This, this has been Passport, Passport to, to Everywhere. everywhere.